Welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review. Our several-year mission will be to boldly go where no podcast has gone before. We will be reviewing every Star Trek comic book ever published. These stories have been released by Gold Key, Marvel, DC, Malibu, Wildstorm, Tokyo Press, IDW, and others. Star Trek and all that the Star Trek universe contains is copyrighted by CBS Studios, Inc. Hello and welcome to Star Trek Comic Book Review with Donovan and Ken. Episode number 264, recorded March 26th, 2017. So last week we did waypoint number three and we kept teasing everybody that with number four, there's the Enterprise story. The first comic book Enterprise story. Yep. So we couldn't wait. We had to do number four today. So we're doing waypoint number four. And uh, Intelligence Gathering 1 through 2. Yes. Yeah, so that Enterprise story was, um, when I scanned it briefly, I thought I knew all the details of what it was about, but I didn't. So when I, re- when I finally read it, I was like, oh, there's something extra here that I didn't realize. So, But we'll right. see when we get into it. Right, and neither one of these uh, – the Waypoint 4 has a Enterprise story, the yep. Enterprise story, yep. and then it also has a uh, Next Generation story, but kind of a yeah. weird one. Yeah, weird, and <laughs> it's like, uh, why did they do this story? It's like, I, it, I didn't find it particularly entertaining. Um, I mean, I thought, I think it was good because it was Dr. Crusher was, you know, like the lead of the story and came up with a solution, but it was like, big meh, 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 meh. Yeah, after reading the the Enterprise story and being a little disappointed that it wasn't true Enterprise, it was just, you know, a a little tiny aspect of Enterprise, uh, I was like, oh, well, the the next generation one is going to be much better. And I found that I enjoyed the Enterprise one better. I did too. I enjoyed it when I and I knew kind of what it was about by just paging through it before. Sure, I liked it more when I read it. Right. So, yeah, it's not a bad story. No, it isn't. All right. Well, shall we? Uh, shall we uh, get into it? Then? Let's do it. Find out what the story is. Exactly. Instead of just chit-chatting here and there about it. Let's get into it. Let's do it. Okay, so Star Trek Waypoint number four, published date March 2017. Creative team for the issue. So these are the people across both stories. Editor Sarah Gatos, assistant editor Chris Sarasi, production design Neil Yataki, publisher Ted Adams. Okay, so cover number one is a uh, TNG cover, and it's pretty cool, action-packed. It's showing uh, most of the senior staff um, of Picard's Enterprise, all firing phasers at some unseen threat. So we got uh, Picard and Geordi and uh, Dr. Crusher and uh, Riker's getting hit and uh, Troy and Data is being carried. He's apparently been hit by Worf, who's also got a big old phaser rifle going. And uh, it's cool looking. And, of course, the Enterprise is... You know, up in space, but you can still see it up behind everybody. And uh, it's that watercolor kind of style painting, but I like it. I like the cover. 
Um, I like how Riker's getting shot in the shoulder and like his shoulders like spraying off, you know, all the bits of his shoulder. And then he's, you can see his uh, phasers dropping to the ground, but it's still in midair. It's pretty cool. And of course it has nothing to do with the contents of the, of the book. Let me just mention that. Okay. So uh, second cover is a photo cover, which shows Archer, which is cool. Scott Bakula. And uh, what uh, he he's in a hallway of the Enterprise or something. Maybe he's in engineering, but he uh, has a, a very serious look on his face. Uh, the subscription cover is a really cool um, uh, drawing uh, that shows Archer. Uh, it shows Porthos, Porthos the dog, very cool, and the Enterprise. And in the background, you see the head of a Sullivan. So that's a pretty nice looking cover. So there's the three covers. So can I can I uh, say something about the that subscription cover? Please do. It's uh, kind of a rare one because yeah. If you look closely, I unfortunately did not get this one, but if you look closely on the cover, it says in in uh, blue text, mm-hmm. "Need high res file." It's a printing error. Oh. They, they IDW's recalled it, but. They uh, actually printed the wrong cover. They printed oh. the low-res re- low uh, file, obviously. So if you go online like to uh, LoneStar.com and uh-huh. actually expand it, you can actually see that it does have the text need high-res file. Oh, yeah, I see that because I happen to be at Lone Star. Right. Huh. Yeah. So okay. uh, anywhere I've seen it being sold uh that's the cover and i and i saw a lot of it uh on uh, the facebooks when the issue came out huh interesting that the people who got the issue was just like uh this is weird well uh low star doesn't have any in stock of that cover yeah like i said from what i've read uh, idw is trying to recall them all so hmm. i think that that one might become a rare one hmm. interesting uh yeah and i like the cover it's it's a pretty cool cover right no it's pretty cool yeah, I wouldn't mind getting that one. It's the one that I would have wanted. Yeah, even right. if even if it does say need high res on it. <laughs> uh, okay, cool. All right, back to the story. Okay, so the first story is um, the fragile beauty of loyalty. Is the title? The writer is Vivek J. Towari. Artist is Hugo Petrus. Colorist Fran Gamboa. Letters by And World Designs. Young Johnny Archer is bundled up and ready for some snowy adventure at his favorite spot near his New York home. Nasasinjin Gorge. God, I probably mur- murdered that. Nakasijin Gorge? Not- anyway, so it's a gorge. It, it's probably real, so look it up. It's Johnny's last chance to see the snowy natural wonderland before he and his family move to San Francisco. The family beagle, named Masca, wants to go too, but Johnny says no to the four-legged companion. He kind of does it in a a little semi-nasty way. Johnny, come on, he's your beagle. Alone, he comes to the edge of the gorge to expose a breathtaking scene of snowy white natural beauty. Mountains are all around, and a frozen lake is at the bottom of the gorge. As he nears the edge of the frozen pond, a strange red-clad, green-skinned Suliban 
comes up behind him and kicks him onto the ice. He slides out into the open lake as the thin ice buckles under his weight. The Sulaban beams away as Johnny plunges through the ice into the frozen water. When he comes back up to the surface, he is met with the frozen lake that he just can't get through from the bottom, and he can't find the hole he came through. Through the ice, he sees Masca looking through the ice, looking down at him. The more clever than normal beagle takes a step up the evolutionary ladder and grabs a stout tree branch from the edge of the woods. Between the dog beating on the ice from above and Johnny punching up from below, a new hole in the ice is made and Johnny scrambles through it with the beagle pulling on his arm. Johnny's out and the beagle is whacking his tail furiously with delight. The ice begins to break beneath the dog as Johnny sees and grabs him while kicking off towards the shore. On the thicker ice, Johnny takes a closer look at the licking machine on top of him and sees it's not Masaka. Whoever the dog is, he begins to glow blue and disappears from Johnny's arms. Cut to Johnny's room, where he is in bed and his waking thoughts are on who that dog was. Enter Mom, Dad, and Masaka into the room. Before he knows it, Masaka is on the bed with sloppy kisses for the boy. He is delighted and asks Mom if Masaka is coming with them to San Francisco. Mom says yes, and Johnny says he will never go anywhere without his trusty beagle again. Cut 20-plus years into the future. Captain Jonathan Archer of the Starship Enterprise is recording a log entry. He is telling of crewman Daniels, who says he is a temporal agent. Daniels says factions within a temporal Cold War have sent an operative back into Archer's past to kill him before he could even enroll in Starfleet. Daniel says he sent a member of the Enterprise crew back in time to save Archer without regard for their own safety. Archer thinks back on his past and wonders who that crewman could have been. Looking at his loving dog, Porthos, who jumps up into his master's lap, it dawns on him exactly who the crewman was. The end. Who was it? Mayweather? (laughs) Porthos! It was Porthos! The mystery beagle that disappears was Porthos! So when I was just flipping through things, I thought it was uh, Masaka that saved him. And it was like, because Masaka saved him, it was like, oh my god, uh, you know, I'll I'll never be without uh, a beagle. Right. Um, And I guess it was in the end, but it wasn't Masaka that did it. It was Porthos. It was Porthos. Clever beagle, I must say. Oh, yeah. He's a good boy. Uh, We have a beagle. His name is Sam. I wanted to name him Porthos, but my wife wouldn't let me. And uh, he's a great dog. And he was intelligent enough one time when we were out in a lake, uh, you know, a little little fun weekend, uh, Cub Scout weekend kind of thing. And uh, somebody's uh, flip-flop. Uh, fell off the the boat into the water, and uh, and I told Sam to go and get it, and he went and got it, 
Did and he was, really? He did. <laughs> uh, it was like he'd never done anything like that before. Uh, at least I never asked him to do anything like that before, and we've had him since he's a pup. So <laughs> he actually it was he wasn't trained to do it. Uh, he just was able to say, uh-huh. "Oh, I see something in the water." So he, he went off. He, he went and got it. So, and that is the only intelligence he has ever displayed. <laughs> well, I think it's funny that you could your wife wouldn't let you name it. Uh... Porthos, but you <laughs> named it after another uh, Scott Bakula character. Oh, Sam, Sam Beckett? Beckett? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, my wife picked the name. So, believe me, it had nothing to do with Quantum Leap. Hmm. That's too bad. Yeah. Anyway, so what'd you think of the story? I, I was a little disappointed that it wasn't more enterprisery, but yeah. uh, I enjoyed it. Well, I, I did enjoy it. I mean, when I was first, you know, flipping through it, when you had had mentioned what what it was about, in very general terms, uh, I looked through and was like, oh, oh, I see what Donovan means. Okay, so you just see the Enterprise at the end because it took place in the past. But then after reading, it was like, I like this story. What beautiful uh, scenery that that the artist drew of that gorge. It's wonderful, and the story was good, and it was kind of a little prequel and something that you know I thought of like. Okay, I'm going to shut up in a minute, but the whole idea that if you've got bad guys that can go back in time, just go back in time and kill the hero. Hello, end of story. And and how could you ever stop that? Right. And of course, the ultimate thing is the Terminator movies, right? You know, go back and kill Sarah Connor, even before, uh, you know, the, the hero is John Connor is born. So right. um, it, I'm, I'm kind of... I, it's cool that they went and actually at least investigated a scenario where that could have happened when Archer was uh, was younger. Right. Uh, yes, but if you are going to do that, yeah, going from the Terminator movies, uh-huh. <laughs> uh huh. Never have I seen Arnie use the uh, tried and true weapon of a kick in the pants. Yeah, <laughs> his way of killing John Connor, because that's all the Suleiman does. Uh, little little Johnny Archer's looking over at the ravine, and this guy just kicks him in the butt, sends him down the way, and I'm like, seriously? <laughs> well, like, why not shoot him or disintegrate him or something? Yeah, exactly. And how do you know that the ice is thin enough? He's going to go it down. I mean, I guess they could have right. scanned it. And done some quick calculations or something. Uh, I mean, is it supposed to be like minimal? You know, you don't. It, what is it? The uh, butterfly effect. Butterfly effect, right? You want to yeah. have the minimal effect in the past so that you don't screw up the the future or their present. So right. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, good point. I guess it could be the the butterfly effect, but yeah. uh, I just thought it was a little 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 odd that well, all he does is give him a good kick in the butt and exactly. And then, like all good Bond villains, he leaves before he knows for sure he's dead. Right. Well, maybe he can only stay in this time for like a couple seconds. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember that much. I think that they could go back in time for a good good amount of time. Well, okay, but wow. But what's the okay? So that's one thing I didn't understand about the whole uh, time travel thing. There was always the unknown. Uh, manipulator that would come back and speak to the Sulabans. 
And right. he would be like in that uh, like beam of whatever, and you couldn't really see. You just saw an outline, and that's it. Sure. And yeah. I thought that was something like they couldn't come fully back. They didn't have the technology to come fully back or whatever. Um, oh, yeah. So well, at least I thought that was the case. Because yeah. otherwise, wh- why are they going through the Suleban? Just come back in time and do your own dirty work. Anyway. Yeah, I don't remember. But obviously but it, in this, they can clearly come back. I mean, yeah, Porthos yeah. does it, so does Suleban. So, yeah. yeah, Porthos does to give him kisses and exactly uses a stick to break the ice. Right. Smart dog. Very smart dog. Unusually smart dog. And the definition of intelligence is supposed to be learning how to use tools, right? Yeah, but, well, he's intelligent. There you go. It's probably all that time and space. He is an astronaut after all. <laughs> he's gone through training. Doggy training. Now, uh, they're on page. Uh, I'm using the PDF from Comixology, so I don't know what the actual page number is. But um, they're on the last page of the story, page 11. Uh, I love that shot of the Enterprise, uh, the NX-01. Yeah. It is a beautiful drawing. Yeah, they've given us a nice payoff, at least, uh, you know, getting a good shot of the of the Enterprise. Right. It is very nice. Uh, is that, well, it kind of looks like it could be Earth in the background, but it probably isn't. Um, no, I wouldn't think it's, so. It's above a blue planet. Uh, yeah, very beautiful. Very nice. Lots of, lots of nice detail. All right. And so last comment. So as of, uh, as of now, 2017 March, uh, only three Enterprise characters have uh, appeared in comic book form. We have Archer, Porthos, and... Dr. Flox. Oh, hmm. yep. Actually, Dr. Flox has popped... Hasn't he popped up a few times in panels? Uh, I know, just that one, right? Or was he in one random panel? I know that he was in that Doctor one, the Fire and Stone or Heart of Stone, whatever it was. And he was also in... um, Flesh and Stone, that was it. Yeah. He was also in in one panel. Yeah, one random panel. Yeah, Yeah, now that you're saying that, I do remember that. Uh, it was it was it was one of the Klingon ones, right? Uh, That's Hotel. right. When it was talking about the uh, how he made them smooth headed. Right. 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 Yeah. That's right. That's right. All right. So we just then, need some and then everybody it, else. The Suleban. The Suleban guy was there. Yeah, it's a different guy though. Well, okay. So the race, the Suleban race, yes. Okay. They've now made a comic book appearance. <laughs> Looking forward to the next full-fledged uh, story, though. Yeah, yeah. Give us a mini series. Come on. Yeah, that'd be cool. Hey, let let them take over the whole issue at the very least. We don't right. need two stories. Set it. Uh, set the. If they did do a mini series, I would want it set after the Enterprise got its refit, so that we could see that that Enterprise. Oh, that would be cool, wouldn't it? Yeah, but but certain people wouldn't be in it, so that would be sad. So maybe right. not. All right. Anything else for this one? No. All right. Let's go to our favorite of the two. <laughs> That's sarcasm on Donovan's part. Okay. This next one, story two, is called Mirror, 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 Mirror. Story creative team, Scott Brian Wilson. Artist, Caspar Wingard. Letters by And World Designs. Worf and Dr. Crusher beam down to a planet 
where they are gathering samples of indigenous flowers that have medicinal value. They might even be able to cure the plague in the Manshira colony. Luckily, they are in a very dense clump of the flowers that seem to be unique on this planet's arid surface. Under a tall cluster of flowers, Worf spots a mirror-like device that at first looks like a funhouse mirror. However, fun is not had when Worf finds himself literally duplicated eight times. Dr. Crusher is duplicated four times when she comes over to have a look. She calls up to the ship, and eventually they figure out that there is some kind of statue-looking thing under the flowers that replicated them, and that that thing is actually alive. Eventually, Beverly figures out it just needed to see its own reflection to create another of itself to cure its crushing loneliness. After it creates a companion, all the extra wharfs, Beverly's, and flowers disappear. How handy. The problem solved, Picard and Beverly have a meal in the captain's quarters with comfy clothes on. The end. That was a brief one, Ken, for you. That was a brief one. Yeah, I didn't think it really um, required a lot of detail. There really wasn't much to it. It wasn't much to it, but man, it was talky-talky. There was a lot of talking in this one. Yep. And uh, the only thing that I liked about the uh, all the the dialogue was that all the wharfs and all the Beverly's would be speaking at the exact same time. Yeah, <laughs> which <laughs> that I was thought kind was of, actually pretty cool. That was kind of uh, entertaining. And then uh, Picard came down to the planet and did a quiz of Beverly to make sure it isn't some kind of alien replacement thing. And uh, she answered all of his uh, personal questions that he right. could throw at her uh, simultaneously, all of them. <laughs> right. And and it was weird because it'd be like he would like look at one and say, all right, Beverly on the left, answer <laughs> this question. And right. then and instead of just the Beverly on the left answering, they both would because they're the same mind. So I thought that was actually kind of interesting, but uh, it it only really needed one page of that. Instead, we got like four. <laughs> I think you're overstating, but yes. But but then okay, so they went from more kind of spread out kind of artwork, traditional kind of panels, to was that a two page spread? I don't know. Yeah, there I think was a it was two page spread, and it, it was, was near of each other. Oh, I was talking about the um, where it just compacted down uh, to a bunch of much smaller panels in two pages. That move the story along, you know. So, so the uh, one that the, at the top left where it shows Picard, and it says in the the, the upper left hand corner it says soon. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. That was a two page spread. That, yeah, right, that right. They purposely made to look like a mirror of each other. Yeah, yeah. Which is and weird. and it's got what uh, one two three. It, it's got like like eighteen panels on these two pages, so it's very dense. They get they get through the story. Uh, they cover a lot of story in these two pages, and there's a lot of text. And uh, yeah, it's interesting. Right. Yeah, but again, the best thing going for it is that when you open up the book, you know, it's it's like it's like as if you put a mirror on one side of the page, and, yep. and you got the same panels. Yep. Um, 
And, and it's not it's not exactly because uh, you know Picard's communicator isn't mirrored or anything like that, but uh, it's it's just the same panel from a different uh, from a different angle. Yeah, with different text. Right. Yeah, definitely different text. Yeah. So there's two pictures of Picard with his <clears throat> his his hand up to his mouth, th- looking right. thoughtful and saying different things in the two panels. Right. Yeah. Yep. So. One thing that they didn't answer for me is if it was making duplicates, then could the Enterprise scan it and, and recognize only one life sign? You know, one Crusher yeah. life sign? Or was it recognizing eight Crusher life signs? Don't know. Never said. Although it seemed to act as if it was – they were real physical beings. Right. All of them. Yet they all spoke at exactly the same time. I mean, even if they're exact copies – uh, you know, with all the same history up to the point that they were duplicated, mm-hmm. would they all really say exactly the same thing at exactly the same time? Right. Probably not. Right, which is interesting because uh, it's a different take on on the whole idea of cloning that you don't normally see very often. Right. However, in the end, it was kind of dumb. So... Uh, <laughs> The mirror just needed to have a companion because it was lonely and it couldn't create a, a duplicate unless it could see it. So uh, let's have a mirror and it could see itself and make a duplicate. It, it'll be so happy. And then all then uh, luckily all the duplicates uh, disappear. Uh, all the right. duplicate crushers and wharfs and flowers. Because there's a bunch of flowers. Oh yeah, the whole planet's covered in flowers, which well, uh, is why I don't quite buy the. Uh... The, the the thing that uh, that I mean, how did the flowers get further away from the mirror if it's just a, a copy? Well, of, so they said the of, entire planet is covered in these flowers. Well, definitely these these mountains are. I mean, you could see the mountains, and they're all covered with the the same flowers. Yeah, yeah. So maybe not the whole planet, but okay, uh, it, definitely as that far area. as the eye can see, and that, and that mirror is not facing that direction. Yeah. Anyways, wacky. Yeah. Wacky. Yep, yep, yep. So uh, at the end of the book, there is a preview. I'm hoping it's a preview and not like an issue zero of a series of a new one shot called Star Trek Deviations. Did you read it? I did not. Yeah, I didn't either. So I'm hoping that uh, when we actually do get to Deviations number one, that uh, these you know four or five pages are are in there. If not, we'll have to come back to this one and and uh, do the little this this few this little preview when we do that. But yeah. it looks interesting. It's kind it of uh, IDW's version of Elseworlds or uh, What If mm-hmm. from uh, DC and Marvel. Right. It's like uh, What if this happened and and so how would things be different? So right. So it says it's a one shot. Does that mean it's it's like a uh, one issue or one series of, of issues, a, a finite number of issues, or what? Uh, from what I've seen, Deviations is going to be uh, just like a single issue. Oh, okay, okay, one issue, okay. Yeah, so um, so Marvel used to do a, a series called What If, and every month it was just like they took something from the Marvel Universe and mm-hmm. said, you know, what if Wolverine never got his Animanium? And then they did an issue on that. Right. Um, 
And then uh, DC would do one called Elseworlds, and they would just be like little one shots of, you know, what if, what if the Waynes found baby Kyle Al instead of uh, <laughs> the Kents, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's kind of kind of cool that they're doing Star Trek that way. They tried to tried it a while back with uh, the Mirrored Universe, uh, which was a series of short stories. Um, Pocket Books did. Yeah. Uh, but uh, this looks like it's going to be the comic book version of it. So interesting. I, I'm looking forward to actually reading this. Yeah. Uh, Me too. Hopefully soon. Cool. From the scanning, and it looks like it kind of takes place after Nemesis, maybe. Oh. What are like, you basing that on? Uh, well, the fact that they have Data's head like they had before, and things like that, and the Dune buggy—I don't know. I'm just making it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, I don't know. Maybe we'll know when when the book comes out. Exactly. All right, shall we move on to the next one? Let's do intelligence gathering. Yes, which is not what I thought it was. Uh, you thought it was just going to be them going out and collecting intelligence? I thought it was going to be one multi-part story. Right. It seems more of uh, like a TV episode. Each issue is a very short episode. Yeah, exactly. So they're, And they don't seem to have much in co- uh, to relate them together. However, it does seem like it's one after the other of the other, you know, it, actually in Picard and Company's life. Right. So they they refer to each other. Oh, we just finished doing blah blah that was in the first issue, and they say that at the beginning of the second issue. So. Right. Other than that, there's not much to link these together. At right. least so far. Maybe there's yeah, a I've common read, thread. I've only read the first two, so I'll, yeah. Maybe it'll get more in depth later. Yeah. Maybe there'll be something tying them together, so the fifth issue brings us back to the first issue. Don't know. Yeah. And we're just like, oh my goodness, that's so amazing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I have the graphic novel. I didn't. Uh, I didn't pull out the uh, the actual issue from the the box. So I, I'm only going to give the writing staff. Uh, I guess it'll be for the whole whole series. So uh, so bear with me. Uh, so this is Star Trek Next Generation Intelligence Gathering, uh, issue one. Um, the written by David and Scott Tipton, art by David Messina, with art assists. And these are all different uh, issues. So I'm just going to read them all off. Mirko Perfettercidi. Ah, I messed that one up. Gian Luigi Gregorno. Gregorni. <laughs> Man, I suck. Uh, Sarah Perzelli. And then the colored by Ilya Chavarsi. Letters by Neil Yutaki and Chris. Maori. Original series edits by Andrew Stephen Harris and Denton J. Tipton. Collection design by Chris Maori and Neil Yutaki. And collection edits by Justin Eisinger. Alright, so there was three covers for this. The first one, uh, cover 1A, shows Riker and Data. And then behind them, in like a little band of what might be like a stonework of some sort uh we see uh, a picture of picard and then there's cover 1b this one again shows Riker and data but this time they're shooting hand phasers and in the background is a uh, neon laser scape looks like a picture from the 90s or something like a uh, like a 
school picture or something. Cover 1C is the exact same as 1B, uh, but this time it doesn't have any of the Star Trek Next Generation text and things like that. All right, so the story starts with Riker flying a World War II fighter plane. When Data interrupts him, uh, Riker turns off the holodeck and steps out of the sh and steps out of the plane and follows the android out of the holodeck. Picard meets with the two about the need for them to visit Daystrom One, which is a facility that is housing all the known knowledge of the universe. Uh, they are doing this by using an artificial intelligence very similar to Data's own brain. And they're storing all the Federation knowledge in one place, which always seems like a good idea. Picard informs the two that the AI is acting up, and since Data is the model for the positronic brain, then perhaps he can help with the solution. Soon, the Enterprise arrives, and the duo beam down. They meet with a Federation admiral who tells them that they may have to pull the plug on the AI. Data states that it might not be that easy since the AI could have became sentient and they can't just destroy it. The admiral says that he figured Data would say that, and that's why he asked Riker to come along too, so that he could follow the orders. Later, Data and Riker are aboard a little sphere, and they enter the brains of the installation, called the Tesseract. Inside, it is a laser light show with, float with floating orbs connected by multicolored laser beams. Data tells Riker that each orb is the combined knowledge of a single world, and that the light beaming from it represents the connections to other worlds. Soon, their advancement is stopped by a floating crystal. They speculate on what this could be, and they try to nudge it out of the way with a little protruding arm. The crystal explodes, damaging the pod that they're in. Seven new crystals show up and further bar their progress. Soon the situation gets even more interesting when Romulans on speeder bikes arrive, and they try to tractor beam the pod away. Riker and Data are able to get the pod close enough to one of the speeder bikes so that the live wire that was exposed when they got too close to the crystal is able to touch the tractor beam emitter on the speeder bike. This causes the speeder bike to uh, disengage the tractor beam and they're able to run away a little further. And they're trying to make their way back to the landing platform, which is several minutes away. So they're almost able to make it to the landing platform when the Romulans return and they're able to get another tractor beam on them. This time, instead of trying to run or touch them with the live wire, they ram one of the Romulan ships that then causes it to nudge into one of the laser beams. And this completely disables the Romulan craft, and they're able to go ahead and make it all the way to the landing bay. While all of this is happening, on the Enterprise, Barclay discovered there was a carrier wave leaving the planet. Using some very fancy technobabble, they're able to pinpoint the receiving end of the wave to a cloaked Romulan ship in orbit. After Picard orders a near-miss photon torpedo, Commander Tomalak decloaks and says that they were only trying to get information on Data's brain for themselves. 
stating that this is no different than when Kirk stole the Romulan cloaking device all those years ago. Later, with the Romulans sent back to their area of space, and the Enterprise is off to continue its ongoing mission, Riker meets privately with Data, and he apologizes for not being as sensitive to the idea that the AI could be sentient. Data assures him that his feelings were not, nor could they have been, hurt by his actions. Riker still feels bad, and he vows to become a champion for AI rights in the future. The end. Okay. So... The first thing I – when I came to the end of the story, it was like, okay, a decent story. But it seemed like, hey, it, it's all wrapped up nicely. I thought this was like a five-parter of the same story. Right. Um, and so this was my – I actually went into the second issue thinking, oh, well, somehow this is going to pick up the storyline, even though that issue seemed to have wrapped up quite nicely. Um, loose ends tied up, mostly. And right. uh, no. That wasn't the case at all. They're all standalones, which we mentioned before. But Yeah, I was surprised. And, I mean, to be honest, nothing really got wrapped up. Is the AI still malfunctioning? Is it still becoming sentient? Is it – or was it just the Romulans? It was the Romulans' interference that was causing so it. So as soon as the Romulans got out of there with their speeder bikes, the uh, <laughs> AI <laughs> became normal again? I, I don't know. I wish there was some sort of explanation. Yeah, I, I assumed, and it is an assumption, that it was their interference that was causing it to uh, uh, to be a problem. Also, didn't Tom Locke say he actually wanted Data himself? So was this like some kind of trap? So they forced the uh, archive to be misbehaving so they knew that uh, Data would be called in to take part in trying to uh, deal with it? Um I, I thought they were talking about one in the end wanting data himself, and I was thinking, well, did they want data himself to try to get more information from the archive? Uh, anyway, it was it was not one hundred percent clear to me. Right, because they got me. I mean, there was one part where Jordy says, uh, you know, they're try they're they're trying to get the data or trying to get data or yeah. something like that. Right, but lowercase intelligence. P. Right, so I'm like, oh, okay, so they're uh, they're trying to just steal all the information from this giant cloud server, um, <laughs> but then Tomalock is saying, no, we wanted to get data for our or create an android for ourselves, and I'm like, oh no, they wanted data with a capital D. Boy, this is confusing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because the uh, because the Tesseract's AI is similar to to Data's positronic brain, maybe that's that's what he was trying to do. But it was very unclear. Right. And, of course, if they wanted data that bad, I mean, they'd try again. So I thought, well, maybe they're going to try again you know, in the next story. So everything's going to be going along fine, and all of a sudden they try to grab data again. And, of course, that may happen in the later issues, but it did not happen in the second issue. Spoiler alert. Right, right. Yeah, I've only read the first two, so I don't know what happens after. Yeah. But did Picard let Tomalock leave and then with the speeder bike Romulans from the inside? I mean, that seems odd. Well, did he beam them back? Did he? Because the last time I saw the speeder bike Romulans, um, they had them in the station. Um, With handcuffs on. Exactly. 
So I think they kept him, but I don't know. But the thing is, okay, so, okay, so the Romulans have cloaking technology. So they could be anywhere in the Federation. And if you're not specifically looking for them for the space distortions, then you're not going to know they're there. It's like, you know, that could happen anytime, anywhere. It's, and you just let them go? It's like, I know we're the good guys and everything, but if you just let the Romulans just go wherever they want to with a little slap on the, on the, on the hand and a little nudge of the ship with uh, photon torpedoes... Um, What's going to keep them from coming back anytime they want to? I mean, I don't want to be, you know, a warmonger or something, but right. if you're going to catch them in your territory, blow them up. Sorry, I know we're the good guys, but... Right, or at least arrest them, because obviously they've broken laws. Yeah. And, un- uh... and unlike every stinking time the Enterprise ends up in Romulan space and is always doing a good thing, <laughs> these guys are trying to grab data, so... Nothing good about it. Agreed. Yeah, I wasn't. I, I was really confused as to why he let him go. Yeah, well, because he's the good guy. But okay, one of the parts I like most about this issue, and by the way, I think the artwork's really good. Um, I enjoyed the beginning where Riker is flying that F eighty two twin Mustang. That is cool. Um, I had a model of that thing when I was a kid. I, I just really, really uh, thought it was cool. Something I didn't realize, uh, and I went ahead and just did the lookup because I didn't remember it was an F-82. My memory is not that good. But um, So I looked it up, and so it's a, a, an F-82 twin Mustang. And I'm just going to mention this as briefly as I can, but... I didn't realize that, but that is one of several examples of twin fuselage uh, warplanes, fighters. And, and the reason they do that, or they've done that in the past, the only reason they've done that is because typically in time of war, they need faster and longer range aircraft. So what they do is rather than creating a whole new plane for the new specifications, they take two existing planes – Twin fuselages, so you've got two engines, so it's faster, and there's more room for fuel, so it's longer range. So they can, by kind of taking two planes and crushing them together, um, you're able to put out a plane faster um, at time of war. So that's, that's interesting. I never knew that. So that's an engineering approach, aeronautical engineering approach that there are multiple examples of, and I did not know that. That's interesting. Yeah, I thought it was. That's why I bothered mentioning it. I just thought it looked cool because uh, it kind of reminds me of the NX-01 Enterprise. Oh. With its – because it has kind of the dual fuselage too, right? Uh, well, there's only one saucer section, but yeah. No, I'm talking about the, right. the engineering sections. Don't they kind of have a – it kind of looks like that. Well, the engineering section is that pod in the back, right, between the two struts? Right, but uh, hold on a second. Let me pull it up. Okay. NX zero one. Yeah, so right. it has that. Uh, yeah, so the the saucer section kind of tapers down, and then there's the engineering section that connects them. Kind of looks. It kind of looks like the back of this plane. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yep. And of course, it has two engines. Of course. Um, 
Yeah. So it was cool seeing it, and it was like uh, it looked like, and, and obviously they put it in there just to remind you what they can do with hollow deck technology when you're not constrained with a budget. Yeah, <laughs> with a TV budget. Right. <laughs> yeah, so that was pretty cool. So they had the shot where Riker was interrupted, and then the the oral door opens with data, and you know it shows the plane just suspended in midair, and it's like Riker's going to like get out and walk <laughs> or something. So, right. uh, but just remi- reminding people the outlandish scenarios that you can apparently do with um, with holo- holodeck simulations, because right. that's going to be important. When they're showing this ridiculous Tron-like sk- sk- uh, inside of the computer scape, which, oh. <laughs> I, I, you know, it's beautiful, it looks cool, but it's ridiculous. Yeah, no, it, it, it was really silly. Yeah. The floating orbs with, with lasers coming out. Yeah, yeah, so... So the I mean, I'm sure everybody listening to this has the book, but it's almost like they're kind of sort of doing a neuron kind of thing where there's a, a pretty glowing, colorful uh, node. I think they called it a node, like uh-huh. circular kind of thing. And each one of those is supposed to represent the knowledge, all the knowledge gathered from a planet in the Federation. And then they got like lasers connecting all these things, you know, almost trying to do like a neuron kind of thing, you know, a brain's neuron and the, and the synapses connecting them kind of thing, but it's lasers. Right. And, and you're supposed to be able to fly around in a 2001 space odyssey pod and, um, you know, navigate inside of it. It's like, and then. And then the Romulans can have speeder bikes. It's like, ah, ah, <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, it's silly. Uh, I mean, and, and and Data even says, this is just like my brain, except just infinitely bigger. And I'm like, really? I don't think your brain is a bunch of floating orbs and <laughs> with, with lasers. Exactly. Lasers. Yeah, yeah I, I didn't like that. And then, you know, Riker's like, we should shoot phasers. And I'm thinking, these orbs are supposed to be the the repository of all known knowledge from a given planet, and you're going to start shooting lasers and stuff yeah. or phasers. And then they even like disrupt one of the beams by crashing the speeder bike into it. So I don't know what that means exactly. Yeah. It was really unclear as to what those beams were even doing is that it was the connecting, connecting it to other worlds, meaning like, like when their histories connected, they would have uh, I, a beam I, connecting. I think them? it was supposed to be like some kind of data conduit, you know. Uh, but other than that, I, you know, that that's it. Seemed like it was some kind of a data conduit. That's it. But why would you want to connect like Romulan and Klingons? Why would they have a beam together? Those are bad examples. Okay, Andoria and uh, Vulcan. Well, I mean, uh, okay, but but is that how you can put data? into the node and get data back out of the node because ultimately that's what you're doing right it's an archive you got to get the data in and you got to be able to retrieve it quickly right so you would so so whoever's doing the looking up right so the main hub if it wants to pull data from andoria it has to go through vulcan in order to get to andoria that's the part i understand 
you, well, you're you're definitely overthinking this, <laughs> <laughs> and they don't want you to overthink it. I mean, I'm overthinking it also. Right. Um, I mean, I, you know, it's sort of a spin on Tron. It's sort of a spin on, uh, well, it's sort of a spin on Tron, and yeah. um, and, and it's fine. It's it's fine. Just get to turn on the uh, suspended disbelief thing and just go with it. Anyway, well, I'll tell you what it did make me do. I mean, now I'm now I trust the cloud servers even less. <laughs> now that I know that Romulans can fly around in speeder bikes, oh god, and see my pictures, I'm definitely out. Yeah, trust it. No, no. Okay, so they had, so they beamed in a small contingent of, of Romulans. Somehow. To steal data? Steal information. Probably. But then also grab data when he comes in with Riker. Right. They want to <sighs> steal data and kidnap data. Yes. yes. <laughs> indeed. Indeed. And they and they chose these speeder bikes, these sled bikes. Um, actually, it looks a little bit more – is it Jatari? The, the, the guys that were in the Avengers movie? Oh uh, yeah, I don't know. They they look a little bit more like like their bikes, like sled kind of things, but with raptor wings. With raptor wings. Well, it is Romulan, isn't it? You right. need that. Yeah, I thought that was funny. Um, interesting choice. <laughs> uh, that that they would and, and they equipped them with tractor beams. That is forethought, unless this really was all about trying to trying to grab data. Right. So another thing that was never answered was the crystalline mines. Uh-huh. Yep. Because both Riker and Data say that that's not part of the the normal construction of yep. the – and it, I don't see any value of it being from the Romulans. No. So where did it come from? Well, and when they saw it, they were insinuating that the core of the repository became sentient and it right. was protecting itself. Right. That's but, what they were saying. Basically. But we never got follow-up on Nope, that, so not at all. Knows. And then it was like, oh, oh, look out. Oh, Romulans. Oh. Uh, and then, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I really thought that those crystalline things would play into how they got away from the Romulans. So let's nudge them into one of those crystalline things, and then that'll blow them up. But yep. instead, it's nudge them into the data beam. Well, that, and also take the arcing uh, tip of your... You know, grab, oh, yeah, grabbing right. arm and shove that into uh, the tractor beam, uh, and that'll disable their engines. So, you know, they uh, they had some uh, creative ways of dealing with them, as our heroes frequently do. Right, right. So, anyways, I was hoping that it would be more, um, like you said, uh, an ongoing story arc, but I was getting the feeling at the end of this one that it was a one-off. Yeah, right. Shall um, we? You got any more else? Um, uh, yeah, I was – okay, this is my last comment. When they were first going through the briefing, um, you know, Riker and Data finding out what was going on and what was being asked of them, when they were talking about the idea of shutting down the core because it may have grown sentient, it's like they were asking Data to do this. I was saying to myself, wait a minute, he's – if it's sentient, then you can't just shut it down. And it's like, Data's not going to go with that. And I didn't think Riker would either. And then, of course, they say, 
okay, uh, you know, data says I may have a problem with that. <laughs> if it's sentient, it's a thinking being. I, you know, I'm not going to just shut it down. And then he says, oh, yeah, that's why we're sending Riker. And it's like, okay, you know, maybe Riker would do that, although he defended data's right to exist and not be carved up to make more of him. Right. You know, in that whole you know, measure of a man or whatever the name of that title was. Yeah, that's exactly it. Um, and, and then it was like, well, even if they sent Riker and even if Riker was willing to do it, then would data feel compelled to stop Riker to protect the, a, a living thinking being. It's like the whole thing was, was a little like, Hmm, this just doesn't smell right. And of course, at the end, they do come back to this. They, they wrap up the end of the story. Uh, where Riker and Data are kind of talking about the conundrum a little bit. Um, but I just thought the right. whole thing was kind of like a, a sticky situation to get in. Right. It did get me to want to watch uh, Measure of a Man again because yeah. I was, you know, especially that last conversation when Data was like, I don't have feelings to be hurt. Yeah. I was like, I kind of remember him being emotionless in the in the courtroom or whatever in, yeah. the, in the trial and i just wanted to rewatch that to see how how they pulled it off that you know data obviously doesn't want to die but he's not afraid of dying or um you know has any emotional response to to dying or, or whatever so mm-hmm. i was i was curious to rewatch it to see how they how did they do that how did they uh, portray a a non-feeling robot's desire to stay alive you know Without, right, without actually cheating and showing emotion, or, or cheating and you know him putting his wants and needs above his programming or whatever. Who knows? I, I can't remember the specifics. Right. That's why I wanted right, to rewatch. Right, right, right. Yeah, a really good episode. Okay, that's the last thing I say about this one. All right, let's let's see if number two continues where this left off. <laughs> okay. So, uh, this is the second issue. It's titled A Matter of Dates, which I thought was kind of odd. Um, published date is August 2008. Wow, was that far in the past? Yeah, I guess so. Um, most of the people are the same. There might have been some small tweaks. I'm not going to go through them again. Okay, the first cover, the main cover, shows uh, Worf and Picard's head and shoulder shots. Uh, with a star background behind Worf and a Borgish background behind Picard, although I don't know what's really Borgish. I mean, if it's really Borg, but it looks like Borgish. Covers by David Messina. Cover B features Worf in a life-and-death struggle with a bald alien with a very ornate sword. The cover's by Joe Caroni. The retailer incentive cover is the same cover as the second cover, you know, with Worf fighting some guy with a sword. Uh, but there's no text or publisher logos or anything like that. It's a clean cover. Of course, that's by Joe Caroni also. A Rigelian technician. Four Rigelian technicians are in the control room of a recently constructed power plant on Votar 7. Meanwhile, four menacing, tattooed figures repel from the roof of the power plant and smash through windows into the control room. They quickly take over and shut off the juice. A Rigelian administrator, 
for the power plant is busy counting recent profits. When out go the lights. A short time later on the flagship of the Federation, Captain Jean-Luc Picard is recording a log telling of their new mission to the Votar 7 colony, where they will help resolve a dispute between Rigelian colonists. Cut to the briefing room where Picard's senior staff are gathered for a briefing. Picard turns the floor over to Commander Data, who will explain that two groups from the Rigel system are working together to found the Voltar 7 colony. They are the Rigelians and the Kalar. The Rigelians are extremely intelligent and industrious. They have an excellent track record of establishing thriving, successful colonies. The Kalar complement the Rigelians well in that they are large and physically powerful. They are renowned for their expertise in construction as well as their aggressive nature. The location of Votar 7 is very strategic, so if the Rigelian colony fails, the Cardassians will step in to fill the void. The Federation wants to avoid the Cardassian intervention. Worf strongly states the Cardassians cannot be allowed to gain a foothold. The colony must succeed. Picard takes everyone by surprise by stating he is happy to see Worf so invested in the colony's success, because he wants Worf to be in charge of the negotiations. This will be an excellent opportunity for Mr. Worf to expand his negotiation skills. After the meeting, Worf states his apprehension with his assignment. Riker says he thinks Worf will make an excellent diplomat. Worf goes to assemble his diplomatic team and asks Ensign Rowe, who is in the middle of a jiu-jitsu match, to join him. She says, he says, she says she has more expertise in being part of an insurrection as opposed to negotiation teams that end them, but she accepts. They beam down with two more members of Worf's team, Worf's team, to meet with the Rigelian faction. They speak to the administrator of the power plant who says the Kalar were paid well for constructing the power plant, and now they seem to think they own the place? They paid the Kalar well for ongoing maintenance also. This is and this is how they're repaid? The admit the administrator says they are the victims and the Kalar are threatening to blow up the dam. Colonists are starting to give up and leave the colony. The administrator says the only way to head off the colony's failure is to gain entry to the power plant via waste ducts that the Kalar are unaware of. War says he will attempt negotiations first, but if it comes to more aggressive actions, a secret way into the plant will be very useful. Later, Worf is back on the Enterprise meeting with Picard. He reports the Kalar refused to allow the Federation to be involved with a dispute. Worf says diplomatic options have run out. He only sees a non-lethal assault on the power plant being the only path to resolution. Picard agrees and wishing and wishes him well with his dangerous plan. Worf and his negotiations team turned strike team use the secret entrance 
despite the smell, and finally enter the control room. The four Kalar, they could see, are in the midst of being dealt with when more Kalar enter the room. It was a trap. The Kalar were more than ready for them. Worf and his team beam out, but not before Worf is told by the Kalar leader that they would never destroy their own work. They never planned on destroying the dam. Worf is convinced the Rigelian plant administrator played him, and that this is just a labor dispute they have pulled them into. Worf is not sure how to proceed. Picard agrees with Worf's assessment of the situation, but does not have a solution for Worf. Instead, Picard tells Worf of a legendary French diplomat named Talleyrand, who was immensely successful through some of the most turbulent times in France, before, during, and after Napoleon's bid at world domination. Talleyrand was very unconventional, but he always found a way to achieve his diplomatic goals, frequently through equally unconventional means. He suggests that Worf needs to find a way to succeed that is uniquely his. Worf said he sees what Picard is suggesting and leaves. Immediately, Worf goes directly to Riker, saying he does not know what Picard is talking about. Riker says Picard is suggesting that Worf come up with a very Worfian solution to the problem. Worf says he understands and beams to the administrator's office with Roe. He confronts the administrator with his misrepresentations of the facts and washes his hands of the matter. This is just a labor dispute that the Rigelians and the Kalar must resolve themselves. As Worf and Roe turn to leave, the administrator beseeches Worf to stay to help with reaching an accord. Worf turns and agrees by accompanying the administrator to meet with the Kalar for immediate negotiations. Later on the Enterprise, the negotiations are proceeding well. Worf tells Roe that the Rigelians refuse to renew the contract at the same rate of compensation, so the Kalar repossess the power plant. Roe asks Worf to remind her never to run up a debt with the Kalar. Worf says he finds the Kalar's directness refreshing. The end. I like the part where Worf is told what to do, and he says, oh yeah, I understand, Picard. <laughs> and then he walks out, and he's like, I have no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> well, yeah, you never want to sound like an idiot to your boss. Right. Especially when you have such respect for, for him. Yeah, that was good. Yeah. And of course, he always goes to Riker, which is cool. They're buddies, you know. Riker's kind of a more of a a peer, uh, a mentor in a lot of ways, as is Picard, but they're more peers, so uh, that's cool. Yeah, I, and I like how big Worf is in this book. He oh my is god, he's a huge monster. He is. His head is like so out of proportionately small compared to the rest of his huge form. Right. <laughs> little artistic license there, which is very I'm much. okay with. Very much. And these Kalar guys, too, are equally huge. Um, same kind of thing. Uh, they've got the tattoos going, and they seem to prefer bladed weapons to energy direct, directed energy weapons, although they have those, too, um, mm-hmm. which is very, you know, very Klingon-y. 
Um, so when they do finally meet in that conflict, uh, you know, it's kind of like warriors on an equal footing uh, coming at each other. That was right. kind of cool. Although, quite frankly, the Kalar leader is able to dodge Worf's phaser fire. It's like, come on, Worf is good. And then he's able to knock Worf's phaser out of his hand, which, of course, then lets them, you know, get, you know, mano a mano hand-to-hand combat. So I know all that had to happen, but come on, Worf is better than that. Is he? I don't think he, he ever hit anything. Uh, all the times he... <laughs> He couldn't hit the side of a barn. All the times people showed up on the Enterprise to kidnap Picard or whatever, and I don't think Worf ever well, hit a single one. What did, I, I think he shot at the. Uh, <sighs> d- d- didn't he shoot at the uh, Borg when they came in? Right, the best the of one, both worlds. Yeah, the ones that just shrugged it off. Sure. Exactly. Well, you know, they are they are <laughs> Borg. Yeah, that was the only time he actually hit it. Every every other time when it was just some some pirate or something he's like miss miss <laughs> he's part stormtrooper oh my gosh <laughs> yeah no I, i'm i'm giving him a hard time but but yeah yeah when they were fighting it was like watching wrestlers or something <laughs> to just these giant dudes fighting. exactly right i loved seeing roe i i really like that character yep um yeah, I thought Roe <clears throat> I thought his selection I, I thought Picard's selection of Worf to handle a diplomatic situation to be wow, fish out of water. because um, you never think of of Worf in that kind of a role. Uh and then he picks Roe, who again is another fighter. Um Right. So uh I thought, wow. They're they're doubling down on this fish out of water thing. Uh, yeah, and I, maybe. I, I like how it works. Yeah, maybe he should have diversified his team a little bit better. A little bit, like uh, bring Troy. Yeah, she would definitely something. be the first person I would bring. Yeah, to negotiations. Exactly. Like you know, help figure these guys out. She might have uncovered the deception on the part of the Virgilian uh, administrator right off the bat. Right. Anyway. Now, the one thing that I really liked was that uh, knowing in the future uh, that Worf will become, you know, the uh, the ambassador mm-hmm. for Klingon, mm-hmm. that uh, for for Klingon for the Klingon Empire, yeah. uh, that I was like, oh, this is cool because this kind of ties in with where I know eventually he is going mm-hmm. to go. Yep, I agree. But, but I don't know if that was really the, what they were going for in the book story, or it was just because. Like you said, they wanted a fish out of the water type story. Well, it does both. So it just fits so well. So yeah. maybe they were thinking of both. Cool. Something <clears throat> that kind of struck me as, as odd. Um, okay. So you're able to beam out of the station when, you're, when your back's to the wall. Why couldn't you have beamed into the station, the control room. Hello. Right, good point. And then even more so, why couldn't you have just beamed away the Kalar guys that are in the control room? Yeah, you they know? should have been there first. It's thing. like, obviously there wasn't some kind of force field stopping them from doing that, or else Worf and his team couldn't have beamed out. So I know that would have made the story less interesting and, and ended the thing faster. 
but it just well, it's hard to build a rapport with somebody if you just beam them straight out of the their home. Right, but they were at the point that they weren't going to negotiate, right? And they're going to go in and take them by force anyway. And if you're going to go in and take the control room by force, why not just beam them away? And then, you know, there's no chance of anybody getting hurt. Right. I mean, one of Worf's team almost got killed. Yeah, I don't understand why Worf had to beam away. Why did he have to stop fighting to save that guy's life? She she could have beamed him away yeah. without Worf. Yeah, but then, you know, there's fewer people to – well, obviously they weren't going to win. Right. They were outnumbered. So um, – but Worf was there still fighting. Uh, at least he found out about supposedly the uh, Kalar's true intentions. So, Right. Another thing about that attack, it's like you're in the air duct. You have a clear field of fire to the four guys that you need to take out. But just pop, just pop the cover off, and you got five people on the assault team. Just shoot them from the, um, you know, with phasers on stun, a stun, of course. Just shoot them from the air duct. I mean, why do you have to jump down and, and give them a chance to get their weapons out? You know, the bad guys to get their weapons out. It just seemed like, yes, it's more exciting, and you get like to you have said, some hand-to-hand. They're the good but... guys. Well, I know, but... They don't just shoot from... Well, if you're stunning people, why not? I mean, it's going to save them, too. I mean, it's the safest thing for everybody. But, <laughs> anyway. But that's not as exciting as mano we mano combat. And of course, Worf is able. If he did do that, he wouldn't have had the chance to have that wonderful long conversation, relationship building conversation during the battle, the hand to hand conflict. So. Yeah, because in all real fights, you 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 talk a lot. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So um, this is pre Deep Space Nine, right? Or or maybe at the beginning of Deep Space Nine. So we're not at war yet with the Cardassians, but were we on friendly enough terms that we would allow the Cardassians to have a business opportunities inside of the Federation? Hell no. No. I mean, we, we, had, we had a Cardi war that we had finished, right? I mean, there was a war with the Cardassians. Um, at some point, yeah. Yeah, exactly, because that's uh, uh, Miles O'Brien was involved in that. At the very least. So um, there was conflict. They don't trust them. Uh, but they did achieve uh, peace, which, of course, you found out more about on Deep Space Nine. Right. So I'm just saying, would they're worried that the Rigelians if, <clears throat> would leave and that uh, they would get the Cardassians to uh, build the rest of the dams yeah. or whatever. I'm, yeah. I'm like, I don't think they would. Yeah, it's a good point. Uh, it they didn't go into the details, but it sounds like this was some kind of, um, you know, maybe um, unclaimed territory or something that was close enough to Federation border and the Cardassian border that they would both be well, interested or might have a claim. You know, it's like some sometimes they do those things. Uh, ooh, the Klingons are making you know with with trouble tribbles, right? Right. Uh, Klingons and uh, the Federation could get their hands on some world that's not quite 
clearly claimed by either side, right, you know, right. yada, yada, yada. Okay. All right, I'll give you that one, Ken. Okay. Anything to shut you up? <laughs> um, I don't really have anything else to talk about. No, no. Um, I'm, I'm, I like the story. Mm-hmm. I like the first story. Was it was okay? I like this one much better. Um, right. Yeah. Well, I didn't. I didn't care for the the tesseract being inside the tesseract parts. So that part right. was just kind of silly. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, no, this was good. This was a straightforward uh, story. Not not a lot to talk about, really. Yeah. What else you got? I got nothing else. That's it. I'm just looking forward to seeing the next issues, reading the next issues, and right. uh, seeing whether this ever does, <laughs> whether any thread is actually um, uncovered. Right. So when I was going through the graphic novel, I did look at the next page of. So, which is the you know the first page of the next story, mm-hmm. and the Romulans that were captured are in this one. So, oh. it shows shows them again in in the handcuffs. So, uh, at least at least it's going to somehow tie into issue one. Okay, because the so. first one definitely was about intelligence gathering, um, because the Romulans were completely doing spy things. This right. one, I. I don't see that it has anything to do with intelligence gathering. Well, Worf had to gather more intelligence instead of just going in there. Oh, that's weak. Blaming people. That's weak. Yeah, I'm just just throwing it out there. Okay, okay. So, okay, so the first one was clearly in alignment with the title of the series. Um, The second one, less so. Right. So I guess we'll see where this continues to go. Yep. With issue Look number three next week. Yeah, so next week we'll do three, four, and five. Finish off yes. the miniseries. Yes. And we hopefully will have a special guest star. Possible guest host, yeah. Exactly. So that'll be fun. Exactly. So that'd be very handy. It's been All a right. while. So Brian yeah. may be joining us. Exactly. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening, and we'll be back next week. Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next week. Later. Thank you for listening to Star Trek Comic Book Review. All Star Trek stories and characters are copyrighted CBS Studios Incorporated. All music stories and characters discussed are for entertainment purposes only. You can email us at startcomicbookreview at gmail.com. Visit us at our website, www.st comicbookreview.com Subscribe to us via iTunes or friend us on Facebook at first name ST Comic, second name Book Review See you next time on Star Trek Comic Book Review Let's get the hell out of here